This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Y'all may be seated this morning. Thank you, Brother Mendel. Uh, So this is a little bit different. I've never done this before. Uh, What we're going to do is kind of just have a a Q&A, and we can have some live discussion too. Um, Some of you have emailed questions or posted on Facebook or asked in person. And so what I want to try to do is answer, field some of those questions this morning, particularly about Revelation 1 through 11. And I was talking a little bit back and forth with Lynn yesterday, and um, she's saying, you know, in a lot of churches, there's a, a sort of don't question the priest, don't question the pastor mentality. And so uh, I, I'm fine with the questions. I'm fine with challenges. I'm fine with the disagreements. Um, I, I do care about how we disagree with one another. Um, I do care that we're not sort of uh, pushing bad teachings, that sort of thing. But... Um, So I do want to reiterate this morning that as we go through Revelation, if there's something in the interpretation uh, that you disagree with, you're welcome to that. uh, that, That's totally fine. Um, But it's something we we could talk about and discuss. And um, so that's fine. I want to have some questions uh, in a list form uh, pulled up here. And oh, let's see. I just, I just have my computer screen here. So the first question that, that I got was, are there prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the end times? And so this is an interesting question. And my answer, as you can see up here, is I have only one. There's one outstanding prophecy. And that, that's simply uh, Jesus' return. Right? So we're not, we're not uh, going to the text especially Revelation. We're not going to Revelation and looking in the text and trying to, to find, thing that co- find things that correspond with modern day events. That, that's not how Revelation was meant to be read. And so, um, as we, by end times, I assume we just mean the return of Jesus. And, and so that really in itself is the only one outstanding prophecy that we have left if we're thinking of prophecy in terms of prediction. Uh, all other prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ Himself and was fulfilled in Christ Himself before He was crucified, raised, and ascended. So um, that's my answer for are there any other prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the end times? We have to resist that urge to treat Revelation as if it's sort of... um, well, you remember when I, when I was a little baby, right? There was this like red and blue ball and it had shapes like uh, carved into it. And you could take like the triangle and jam it into part of the ball or the square and jam it in or the rectangle. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, Revelation is not like that. It's not like a, a, a ball that we're looking at historical events and trying to jam them into those, those places. All prophecy has already been yes and amen fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that's important. 
The second one is the Bible describes heaven as endless worship. Are we going to see Old Testament prophets? Um, uh, the, the computer's a little finicky. Are we going to see Old Testament prophets uh, and family members? Or does it not matter? And my answer to this is, yeah, heaven, uh, a good definition of heaven is the fullness of God's presence. And, and so what's happening here on earth right now is that we're getting, we're getting little foretastes of that. We're getting glimpses into that. And so as we think about heaven in its final state, what that really is, it's a synonym for the fullness of God's presence. Because right now it's only partially God's presence. Right? And so we will experience the fullness of God's presence. Uh, and the, the question is, will we recognize Old Testament prophets, family members, and, uh, or does it not matter? And the way I like to say this is, yeah, we're going to recognize, like I'll, I'll recognize Brother Barry when I see him. Uh, and the fullness of God's presence. I recognize Maria. Um, uh, somebody put it to me once, we don't get stupider in the afterlife, right? Um, and so we're, we're going to, I thought that was a kind of an interesting response that I received. But um, yeah, so I think we will recognize one another. If you think about Jesus as the precursor for this, right? He was crucified and, uh, and, and he came back. And it's weird because as he's walking on the road to Emmaus, like they kind of recognize him, but not really. As he sits down to eat fish with them, they recognize him, but not really. As he's sitting at the tomb, uh, Mary recognizes him, but not really. And so uh, we're going to recognize each other, but it, we're, we're, it might be kind of like not really. Because our bodies have been um, made... Um, uh, flawless in the afterlife, we're all going to like that, right? Flawless bodies. Um, our bodies will have been made imperishable. And so we will recognize each other, but we may look a little bit different too. Um, and I do think we'll get to, for all those who are in Christ, we'll, we'll get to meet the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and all these guys. So that's pretty cool to, to look forward to. I think too that we'll have... We'll have pets in the afterlife, or there'll be animals, right? The idea isn't that this earth sort of just burns up and vanishes. That's not how it works. The idea is that when Christ touches down here, this place that we're already in is transformed. And that's what Scripture speaks of as the new heaven and the new earth, right? So uh, we'll, we'll have trees, we'll have oceans, we'll have all this. It'll just be perfected. Yeah, um, that's a great question, great set of questions. Is all the thunder and wrath hurled towards earth against only those who have hardened their hearts to Jesus or God? And so in Revelation, when we encounter thunder, thunder is usually symbolic of God's uh, judgment. And so, yeah, in the text, whenever uh, we have that thunder often happening, uh, his wrath is a form, one form of judgment, right? There are lots of forms of judgment that, that God could bring about. God could just wipe everything out if he wanted to. God could just kill if he wanted to. God could drown everything if he wanted. He could burn everything. There's all sorts of, the, the way the, 
the uh, numbers of judgments, types of judgment that exist, it's innumerable. One of those types of judgments is God ra God's wrath, which is just God's absence, right? God pulling himself out of a situation. Um, and the only reason and the only instances where God does that is where we humans have rejected God, told him we don't want him, either verbally or with our actions or both, Right? So it always falls on us for making that first step away and all the subsequent steps away. Um, and uh, as Paul says in Romans 1, 26 and 7, eventually God just hands us over to our sinful desires. That's what wrath is. It's a handing you, us over to our sinful desires and God pulling back, saying, all right, here's what a, life, a taste of life without me is like. That's what God's wrath is, leaving us to our own devices. Um, so, yeah, that, that is only for the unrepentant that, that God does that. Somebody said, in your sermon a few weeks ago, you talked about a stolen identity. How do you see the church shaping us so we know our identity in Christ? What would that look like? So, yeah, I think um, when we had the drive-in service, I was talking about the sevenfold identity. And I, I think that's a reference to that. You remember a, a few sermons back before that, however, where I was given the, uh, the example of how husbands and wives often start to look alike as time goes on, right? And not only do they start to look alike, they start to sound alike. They use the same kind of figures of speeches, maybe the same accent. Um, they act alike. They, they have mannerisms that are alike. Uh, and over time, they just become more like each other. And it's the same with us in Christ. Uh, the more time that his bride spends with the groom, the more that they, they, they should start to look alike and sound alike and act alike and be alike. Um, and, and so I, I talked last week about these three aspects of Christ as culture, polity, art, and story. Polity is just a fancy word for sort of the ways of life the rules that we live by, the creed, for example. That's one thing that, that shapes who we are. Here at the Bridge Church, we have a manual. It's called the Policies and Procedures Manual. Um, it talks about all the different policies and procedures we have in place. Uh, above that, we have the Nazarene Manual. But really, above all that, we have the creeds and then Scripture. Right? If someone can affirm the Apostles' Creed, then I'm willing to extend the right hand of fellowship to them. Because it's them saying, hey, I'm willing to live under the same rule and authority that you're willing to live under. Let's do this together. And that's another reason that, that it's important to affirm something like the Apostles' Creed. So as I think about our polity, um, I, I look to the Apostles' Creed and that shapes a lot of what we do, our story. Now, the bridge itself has its own story. It's 21-year history and story. Uh, Derek was sharing some about that in Mob this week, um, talking about how the bridge is, is a giving church, and we have a long history of being a giving church. And probably a, a bunch of you, your, your individual stories, how they weave into the bridge's story, uh, is probably really fascinating and important. Because that's part of what's made this thing go for 21 years. And hopefully, as Mendel said, for 21 more, right? Um, so our story, 
Who are we? What is the, the neighborhood across the street? What do they know about us? And, and what story is it that, that, that we take to them and share with them and invite them to live into and, and be part of? So we, we need to be thinking about what our own stories are. And that's why I was encouraging everybody to work on their testimonies. That gets you reflecting on your own life story and perhaps how it intersects with the Bridges life story. So our rules, our story, our art. And by art, I mean things like our music, the way we worship. I mean things like our language, the way that we talk, the words that we use. Um, those things are all important parts of what it looks like to have Christ shaping our identity. And I, I could go more into that. A really, a really important one, what we call a distinctive of the Nazarene Church, the Church of the Nazarene, is our emphasis on entire sanctification. That's one thing that distinguishes us from every other denomination or movement. Right? We're, uh, some Methodist churches focus on that too, but that's our big distinctive. We believe that we can be entirely sanctified. In fact, that we are entirely sanctified. And I've preached on that before, how when we repent and turn and cling to Christ, that, that heart that, was, that we were born with that was out of position is popped back into place. And now we can love God fully and purely without ulterior motive. And we can love others purely and without ulterior motive. And so that, that's an important aspect of our identity and who we are as Nazarenes. And hopefully you, you can affirm that uh, happily and strongly. Um, all right, I'm going to do one more question. And I have a whole bunch here, but then I want to open it up just live and see if anybody has any questions. And then maybe we'll go back to this. It says in Revelation 10:6, part B, you have translated Jesus saying, the time is not yet. In other translations, such as the NIV and so on, the verse says there will be no more delay. Just need a little clarification because they seem to indicate an opposite. Yeah, so if we go to this, um, Revelation 10.6, so this uh, Bible software that I'm using here is called BibleWorks. It's an old software program, but I really love it. What you see on the screen up here at the top is in English. It's the New Jerusalem Bible Translation. And then I have below it a Greek, New Testament Greek translation. Below that I have Hebrew and below that I have Latin. So anytime I go to a verse, I'm looking at all four of, or at least the three ancient languages. I have the English up there today so y'all can see it. Um, but I'm, I'm looking at these three languages, but especially the Greek when I'm in the New Testament, to see how things are laid out. And if you look uh, at the Greek here, um, Right here it says, Oti chronos ukethi este. And I know you guys can't read Greek like that probably, but what that means literally, if we go word for word, because time, chronos, like chronology, right? Uk eti, that uk means not, eti means yet, and este means uh, is, just is, or will be. So this says, because the time is not yet. And so that's why I've translated that very literally there. Now, the other part of this, there, there's a reason as you follow the flow of Revelation, uh, is because the seventh trumpet hasn't happened yet. This verse that we just read in 
I think it's with the sixth trumpet. And so we're waiting to get to that seventh trumpet because it signifies the completion of Christ's atoning work. And so the, the good reason to translate this as the time is not yet is because we're still waiting to get to the seventh trumpet where the time will be completed, which that is where Christ's atonement will be completed. And so we can look at 1115 real quick, uh, which was in our verses for last week. So you can see it there. You can see the English. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and voices could be heard shouting in the sky or in heaven calling, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah or Christ and he will reign forever or in the Greek into the ages of the ages. And so this uh, is the time that that happens. So uh, very interesting. I want to pause here. Anybody have questions uh, that they, they would like to float this morning that maybe didn't make it to the email or Facebook or whatever? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, that's good. So the question was, um, in one of the sermons I talked about hell uh, being a place for the unrighteous and a place for the righteous. This is, this is a really important question because in the creed that we affirm, it has that weird line that says, he descended into hell. That's kind of odd. Like, why is that there? Why is the church affirming this? Well, if we read, is it, I think it's First Peter, uh, where it talks about Jesus descending into the underworld and he's preaching victory or release to the captives. And what's interesting as you look across the sweep of Scripture uh, is that hell uh, is, is called by different names. So you have a word like Sheol or Sheol. You've probably heard that term before. Uh, you've probably heard the word abyss before. Uh, you've heard Hades. Uh, and then obviously you've heard hell. Hell is an English word, right? And what has happened, especially since the revivals in uh, early America, hell uh, became this place of fiery torment. And so the preachers were preaching hellfire and brimstone sermons. And the idea of hell uh, takes on a lot of baggage at this point in history that it necessarily didn't have prior to. And so hell actually just comes from a German word. Right? But if we go back to, to Greek and Hebrew, and we're dealing with words like Sheol and Abyss, Avusos, uh, those sorts of things, what we see is that, especially in Revelation, the abyss uh, is the part of the underworld that's reserved for the unrighteous dead. Right? As you read through Revelation, that's clear. All the unrepentant and the unrighteous, Satan and his minions are, are coming from and confined to this abyss, the avusos in Greek. And uh, Revelation told us a few weeks ago that Abaddon or Apollyon, which is just another na two names for Satan, uh, is the king or the, uh, the ruler of that place. And then you have uh, another place, uh, if you're going to go back to 1 Peter, where the righteous dead are in the underworld. And once Jesus is crucified in that three-day period before he's raised again, he descends into hell, and that's where he preaches 
release or victory to the captives. Now you got to think about that. If Satan is the messenger king of the underworld, and all those who are his minions or his disciples have willingly chose to follow him, they're his followers, they're not his captives. So essentially, those who are taken captive are the righteous dead, those who have believed in Christ but are dead and awaiting for the great resurrection. And so in that three-day interim, Jesus descends into hell and he preaches his victory to them that they will be raised on that great resurrection day. And so this is where the idea... Uh, so we need to do a little bit of research on terms like Abyss and Sheol, Hades, and these sorts of things, even Gehenna, uh, to make sense of that. But that's where the idea of the, the two compartments in the underworld, or the two sections of the underworld come from. You have the Abyss for the unrighteous dead, um, and maybe what has traditionally been called Paradise for the righteous dead. It's not purgatory like the Catholic Church believes, but paradise. Right? Uh, it's also being called Abraham's bosom. This is where the righteous dead, the repentant, who are waiting for their release, right, uh, dwell. And so that's where that comes from. Hopefully that answers. There's a lot more behind that. Um, but that's why we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, Christ descended into hell, and we believe he wasn't down there evangelizing the lost. That's often a common misperception. The Greek word in Peter is not evangelized, but it's actually uh, preached. So he's preaching victory to the repentance, giving them the hope that they will be raised soon. And that's where that comes from. Let me go back to a couple of these questions and then uh, field another, uh, another one. Uh, somebody said, I don't, know, I don't remember you saying what text you're translating Scripture from. I'd appreciate you sharing that again. So I use, it's called the SBL GNT, which stands for the Society of Biblical Literature, Greek New Testament. And it's a very reliable representation of the Greek New Testament and its manuscripts. That's the Greek text right here that I'm using. And so uh, if you wanted to, to see, let me show you here. Uh, this is kind of just what it looks like, all chapter 11, for example, of Revelation. And so this is what I read from, and this is what I translate from. Um, yeah, so dealing mainly just with the Greek. I like, uh, as far as English translations go, I, I like the New Jerusalem Bible translation because I feel like it follows the Greek text very closely. The NIV, for example, which is fine. I, I, can, uh, I can roll with the NIV. But it doesn't, it doesn't go out of its way to really stay close to the Greek or Hebrew text. So for me, if I'm going to recommend some English, I want an English translation that really tries to follow closely the Greek and Hebrew, as well as Aramaic. And the New Jerusalem Bible does a pretty decent job at that. There are other translations that are good, too. Um, there's one called the NET, the New English Translation, which is pretty good. Um, the New Jerusalem Bible was done by some Catholic scholars. I don't feel like it has a Catholic bent to it, though. Um, but I, I mainly follow it because it sticks close to the Greek and Hebrew. Good question. Let's see some of these other 
Revelation 1.4 says, Are the seven spirits seven different beings or angels? Or is it the Trinity? And so if you think back to Revelation 1.4, right, um, it's really the Holy Spirit. Uh, so right here, this word seven spirits. The seven spirits are who, bef who are before God's throne. And in Greek, epta pnevmaton uh, is what we get down there. Seven spirits. Now, if you go to the end of Revelation 1, around verse 19, uh, is it 19 or 20, it says this, the, the mystery, literally is what you say, of the seven stars, he'll tell you, is the seven, go the seven golden lampstands is this. Seven stars are the seven, they translate it wrongly, messengers is what it should say, of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Now, you gotta, you gotta get this, right? There are seven congregations in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, but they represent one church. Just like there are seven spirits represent one spirit. Is that number seven just key through Revelation, and often is really just going to represent a whole thing. That's what the seven stands for, wholeness or fullness. So when we talk about the seven spirits of God, we're not saying the spirit is like seven different beings. We're talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back. Anybody else have a question here? No? Yes? No? Um, in 116 and 119, uh, Jesus has seven stars in his right hand. So if the seven stars represent the seven churches, oh, I just de dealt with this. How can the Holy Spirit be seven beings? And so I just kind of dealt with that. Seven represents one, a whole one thing a lot of times. Um, Revelation 2 and 3 says... Can we classify those seven churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, Ephesus, as practicing moralistic therapeutic deism? It is the Holy Spirit asking the seven churches to repent from that. That's a tough question. Uh, we talked about uh, moralistic therapeutic deism last week. This is the kind of Joel Osteen church, uh, the Joyce Meyer church um, that, that's doing this sort of thing. God isn't really involved. He's kind of just up there. But if you can throw me a, a blessing every once in a while, it'd be appreciated, right? Or a lot, it'd be appreciated. Uh, if things can just work in my favor. And so it's hard to say if the seven churches were doing that. It seems that the problem with the seven congregations overall was they were going into heresy. And this was in large part being propagated by the group called the Nicolaitans. And Jezebel was one of their leaders. And she was leading them repeatedly into sexual immorality. And as we get later into Revelation, uh, that becomes even more clear. Uh, and Jezebel, I think, perhaps is the one seen riding this beast. And she's responsible for leading people into all these egregious forms of immorality, particularly sexual immorality. Uh, so it's hard to say if they were MTD churches... Um, but probably leaning towards not. They're just immoral and unallegiant. Uh, you have been emphasizing repentance. 
Because time is of the essence. And we don't want to be like the ten virgins in Matthew 5. They weren't prepared. So is the Lord telling us to be prepared or be left behind or, or be made dead. And I'll say to this that, um, in fact, the whole Left Behind series from Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, while it might be a fun read and while the movies might be interesting, it's all a theological sham. It's all wrong. They've just got it all wrong. Um, if anything, this probably sounds really weird, but I've said this before, if anything, you want to be left behind. I want to be left behind. Why? Because Jesus is returning to this place and transforming this place, and he's tasked us in the interim, in the waiting period, with being agents of renewal in this place. So we are pre preparing for his return and preparing this place for him. We want to be here. If you go into Matthew and read the story about uh, Noah, that's where a lot of the left behind proponents, that's sort of where they first go to. Um, what's happening there is, uh, well, you find, that, you find that Noah and his family were the ones who were preserved. They were left behind. Everybody else was swept away, taken away by the flood. And Jesus uses that analogy to say, that's what you want to be like. You want to be the remnant left. Right? You want to be the people who are preserved. You don't want to be taken away or swept away. Um, and so that, that's important to, to know. And I'll just reiterate, look, we don't know, we don't know when the... Jesus' return is. Nobody does. We don't have an inkling. Right? The, the whole message of the New Testament is just be ready always. It uses the language be ready in season and out of season. And so that, that's what we're called to do. We're not called to make predictions. We're not called to, to be like Jesus is coming back October 31st, you know, 2024. As I said last week, there's always been a 100% failure rating when anybody has tried to predict the end. And so we need not busy ourselves with that sort of thing. Just be ready. And the best way to do that is to be repenting. Um, Revelation 4 mentions the 24 elders. Are they more angels? No, they're just the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles mixed together, right, or joined together. And these 12 tribes and these 12 apostles, they're the figureheads of the church. The New Testament seems to indicate that they will actually participate in helping Christ render judgment. Right? So they, they have a key role in the church. They are our figureheads. Another question, um, Revelation 5, the four living creatures, day and night, never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This may be unanswerable, but why are the creatures depicted as so weird looking in appearance in their worshiping God? That's right. These uh, four living creatures, they represent every tongue, tribe, and nation, so the church. And they're, they're, they have like wings. And on their wings, there's like eyes all over their wings. And there's like wings in the back of them. And they have all these odd features. And... That's supposed to be somehow representative of the church. Part of the reason John's doing this is because, as we'll start to see next week, 
John's really going to begin to lay into the Roman Empire. He's going to really start to undermine the Roman government. And when he's preaching this story, or telling this story to everybody under the rule of the Roman government, he's got to code his language so that he doesn't get killed. And so the churches with this document don't get killed. And so he's using all this fantastical sort of mythological imagery to portray these characters in, in very fascinating ways, at least in part to protect himself and to protect others. It's, you, here's one way to think of Revelation, like a political cartoon. Right? Um, the, the Republican and Democrats, they each have animal symbols for their parties. Right? The, is it the Democrats? They have the donkey. Is that right? Which is fitting. Just kidding. Um, and uh, that's actually where it came from, right? Um, there's a joke. Come on, lighten up. The Republicans, they have the elephant. Right? It's an elephant. Right? And so if you look at a lot of political uh, comics and cartoons, uh, you'll see the donkey and elephant featured prominently. And that's a really funny but safe way of poking fun at these two entities without necessarily maybe putting a target on your back. You all, um, what was that, that one political story, Animal? What, somebody who just graduated high school should know that. Animal Farm or something like that? Orwell? I don't know who wrote it, but I don't know. But that whole thing is a political satire, making fun of the political rulers and leaders of the day. Revelation as we get into next week, is going to start that. It's going to start that. It's going to pick up heavy into that. And it's going to undermine that Roman government. And John has to use this sort of imagery as a way to protect himself. Uh, so I think you'll enjoy uh, seeing how that, that plays out in Revelation with all that imagery. It's really fascinating. I mean, it's, I was thinking about this a little bit yesterday. If, if I were to say something like, uh, the island whose head has a diamond, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Which island am I talking about? Oahu, right? That's a very weird way of saying it. That's, that's exactly what Revelation is doing. You know? Um, yeah. I, I could, the, the, the island who's encircled by crystal blue and who's, who has ahead of a diamond. I could just keep adding all this like crazy imagery, but you'd still know what I was talking about because you're from here and you're tuned into that. The original hearers of Revelation, they would have known that when John says something like, uh, the beast who sits on the seven hills, they would have known he's talking about Rome, which was a city that sat atop seven hills and that its beast is its emperor. They would have been very tuned into that. So I could say something like, uh, the country whose leader is an orange-headed monster. Right? You would know what I'm talking about. Right? Some of you are laughing, all right, you'd know what I'm talking about. Uh, if I wanted to undermine Donald Trump, I could say something like that. Right? Uh, that that's what was going on in Revelation. Um, in 9.4, People without the seal of God on their foreheads are mentioned. Is the seal 666 the mark of the enemy? Yes, it is. And in the coming weeks, we're going to get to look at how the 666 works 
I'll give you a preview of coming attractions. Uh, that, that 666, um, in Hebrew, it spells out the word Nero Kaiser, which means Nero Caesar, or the Caesar who is Nero. That is the emperor Nero. So as a numeric and symbolic way, again, of referring to the leader of the Roman government, Nero at the time. And everyone who has bowed their knee to Nero and worshipped him, this becomes a matter of allegiance. So Revelation is in large part going to ask, who is your allegiance to? Your government or your Christ? Right? And it asks the same question of every generation, including us. So we'll talk more about that. Um, by the way, uh, Carlton or Tuan have some handouts for you. Um, and so I'm going to have Carlton come around and give those to you right now. And as you get one, uh, in a moment I'll talk about that. As he's doing that, I'm going to answer another question. In 10.4, why is John told not to write down what the seven thunders, that is the, the, the Holy Spirit, sort of in a, in a mode of judging, why is he told not to write down what they have said? That's a great question. I think my answer is because he used to actually go and preach it rather than just write it down, although he does end up writing it down in, uh, at the end, in verse 11. Uh, he, he writes it here, so we still have it preserved, but it's, and they said, it's plural in the Greek, this is wrong, this is not a good English translation than I was told. That's a bad English translation, even though it's the one I recommended to you. It literally says in Greek, and they said to me, and there are only one, one plural entity speaking in Revelation chapter 10, and it's the seven thunders. And what they tell John, you're to prophesy again. That is, go call people to repentance. This time, to many uh, different nations and countries and languages and kings. And so he's, he's, he doesn't write it down at the start because he's mainly just meant to go and preach it. Carlton, can you hand me one of those as well? All right, so hopefully uh, still a few of you are waiting on one of these. But, man, I put a lot of time into this, and I didn't get to finish. But if you flip to the very back real quick, um, what you have here is an outline of Revelation. And I've left the second half of it blank so that you can put some notes in there in the coming weeks and fill this out for yourself. Uh, but, as you'll see there, on the left-hand column, we have the visions. And there are 12 of them. Revelation is essentially ordered around these 12 visions. And as these 12 visions happen, they occur in mainly four different locations. And you can see those there. The first one is the islands. The second is the throne room. The third is the wilderness. And the fourth is the mountain. And if you are to look at the island of Patmos out in the Aegean Sea today, um, in fact, all of these things uh, could have just happened within the vicinity of Patmos. Um, but it's, it's a vision, right? So he's, he's going to these different places while he's given these visions. And you can see the verses they, these visions correspond with, and then the descriptions of what's going on in each section. So the blanks, the blanks down in the bottom right corner are for you to fill out as we go along. Now... If we flip back to the front cover, 
you can see the title is The Symbols of Revelation, A Master Key. And you have about 34 pages here of notes. So these are, these are I've broken, I went through and I found every single thing that could be symbolic in Revelation. I put it in a massive list and then I took all the stuff in that list and categorized them, like fit them into categories. So numbers is a category, for example. Furniture is a category, for example. Weapons, uh, those are categories. And I've described what each thing symbolizes and where it can be found in Revelation. And also where it connects with other things in Revelation. Uh, so uh, I encourage you to bring this to church on Sunday mornings. You can be flipping through it and looking uh, through it as you need to. Take it to your peer groups and use it there, and also just in your own personal study. This is a ton of work put into this, and I hope you find it really beneficial. I hope to have the last several pages completed in the, the coming weeks. Um, this will be part of a commentary that I'm writing too, so it'll make it into book form eventually. But I hope you find that useful. Got a few more questions here, and then uh, we'll maybe wrap up. Uh, somebody asked, what is the New Jerusalem? Touched on this a little bit in the, the, the past, but just a reminder that it's not a place. It's a people. We are the New Jerusalem. All other believers in Christ form the New Jerusalem. And I used the example, I think early on in the, the series, like if I said something like, you know, I was out last night, and man, all of Honolulu was crazy. Well, you know, right, that the buildings and the roads, like those things are they're stationary. They're not doing anything. So you know that when I say all of Honolulu was crazy, that I'm talking about all the people. And that, that's how Revelation, when it talks about the New Jerusalem, it's talking about it as the people. All the New Jerusalem. It is all the church. So when you encounter New Jerusalem, you can just think of it as a synonym for church. Okay? Um, in Revelation 20, the people don't repent. Somebody's ahead of me here with Revelation 20. Uh, people don't repent even after the plagues. Is it because humans are prideful, idiotic, and arrogant? Yes, that's why. Um, that's exactly why. That's why people don't repent. So the last question was actually uh, the one Maria asked. So that's all the questions I received and so, again, I'll open up the floor for a minute. If anybody has any other questions, I can do my best to try to answer them. Um, so I'll give the floor, open the floor for a moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He preached victory to them. Where do they go? Yeah, so she's asking, uh, piggybacking on the previous question, did Jesus go and preach repentance to uh, those who are not in the abyss but are in paradise? Um, he didn't preach repentance. He preached victory to them and release. Um, they're still there. They're still in paradise. Yeah. Your soul is in paradise. God's protective presence. Until he returns. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. So the way we have to think about, so we, we kind of have to, to, to step back from the evangelical mythology that when we die, we go to heaven in the sense of the fullness of God's presence or, or this place with, with crystal seas and golden roads. That's not what happens. Uh, when, when a loved one dies, all the New Testament gives us is that their soul is in God's presence, protective presence. That's it. There's one line in the whole New Testament. That's it. Um, so our souls go into God's protective presence, and we're there waiting to be raised. We're waiting on the great resurrection day. When Jesus returns, that's the great resurrection day. All the dead in Christ are raised. All the, the uh, unrepentant are also raised. And... Everyone will stand for judgment before the Lord. And uh, those who have repented and trusted and believed, sworn their allegiance to Jesus, will stay with Him here in this new heaven and new earth. And those who are unrepentant will be confined to the abyss everlastingly. This, by the way, is what an apologist will have to do, uh, in part, right? So uh, sharing these things, explaining these things, uh, being willing to field questions. So I hope for you, especially you, uh, that this is a, a beneficial thing to see and witness. Um, so you got to know your stuff. you got to study hard. Uh, it's important stuff, yeah. Well, are there any other questions? If not, we'll wrap it up here. Um, let's do that. I'll just have a word of prayer to close us, and we'll end there. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful for this day. And as difficult as the text of Revelation seems to be, and, and as difficult as it can be to understand, we're thankful for it. I'm thankful for a, a church that is willing to to walk through that difficulty, to embrace that difficulty, to, to take on the challenge of, of thinking through it and asking questions of it. Because, Lord, we, we have to admit, we, we've typically shunned that part of Scripture. And as a result, it's been so abused and so misused, so misinterpreted. So, Spirit, as we continue on in our study of Revelation... I pray that you would work in me to be a faithful interpreter and preacher and teacher. I pray that you would work in everyone here. That they would be faithful studiers and interpreters as well. Lord, that as we have disagreements, that iron could sharpen iron. And that we're spurring one another on to just be better. So Lord, I, I, I just ask that you would lead us as we strive to be faithful in understanding this text and all the others that have been gifted to us and are so life-giving. Help us to yield our allegiance to you and every, under every other allegiance under that one. Lord, we love you and thank you. We bless you and praise you this morning. Pray these things together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.